Good morning. So I've got to be honest with you. I really believe in 2 Timothy 3.16, which is all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But this week, I read this passage and was like, Oh, thank you, Pastor Matt, for scheduling me now. So let's see if we can pull something out of this passage. If you don't, uh, I, I, so just to be clear, I absolutely believe that, and I know that God has something in this passage for us. It's just at first blush, you read this and you're like, what in the world? Why is this here? Like, this doesn't seem to have any relevance whatsoever, but it does. Um, For those of you who don't know, um, some of you may actually uh, recognize me. I was here well before COVID, and um, I just haven't been back since. I don't know what the case was. Eldon did not like me or whatever, but now he's gone. I decided to wear flip-flops like he does so that, you know, just channel my inner Eldon. Uh, My name's Jason. I am the community life pastor at Central. Uh, I mostly spend my time at the Chilliwack campus and work with Jeremy and Eldon. So if you don't know me, now you at least know why it is that I'm on the stage. Um, this weekend, we went, uh, me and my friends uh, go, kind of, we just take a boat and we go up Harrison a ways. We find a, a random island and we camp on that island for a couple of days. Um, so it's good that most of you aren't sitting too close because I smell like I've been away for a couple of days. Um, and one of the things that we like to do is we'll take the boat and we'll kind of peruse the shores and find some cliffs that we can jump off of and try and find them at a point where, you know, it's not, it's reasonable, it's, it's unreasonable, we're, we're trying to figure it out. And so, you know, you kind of take the boat around and then you get in the water and you try and see how deep it is and are those rocks that are right there going to be too far for us to jump past? And then, and then you figure out, can we get up to that spot there? And so then you climb your way up to that spot. And then you look over the edge. What was I thinking? This is too high. And it doesn't matter how many times that you've done it. When you're standing below and looking up, it does not look that high. But when you're standing up top looking down, it looks impossibly high. And I have to say that I'm not an adrenaline junkie. And so more often than not, I back down. More often than not, I like my feet on the solid ground as opposed to the rush of launching myself off into that world to see what it's like. I can think about all of the negative things that could happen. What if there was a rock that I didn't see? What happens if I go too deep? What happens if I don't jump far enough? What happens if my feet slip and now I go a different direction? And I can think about all of the reasonable things not to take that leap off. I think often in our Christian life or as we kind of approach uh, God, if, if we have faith in him and we know his word and we know what he calls us to, we can think very much like that because sometimes God calls us to very audacious things. 
and we stand at the edge of what God calls us to, and we look down and we think, that is too far. There is no way I could possibly take that leap. I am going to back away. I'm going to stick with what's reasonable, where my feet are on solid ground, and I'm just going to manage my life that way. And that can come in so many different forms. Maybe, maybe at this point in time, you don't, you don't know and you're wrestling with whether or not you know, God and, and, and Jesus and, and who he says that he is and, and what he accomplished. Maybe you're wrestling through that and you're thinking, man, that is a leap too far. Or maybe you're wrestling through something with your kids and, 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 and wondering, like, well, do I go with what the culture has to say or with the, 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 the lean of the culture? It seems so reasonable. It seems so pragmatic and, and simple. Or, or do I trust God? Do I train my child up in the way that he should go, even though it's so countercultural and maybe that will cost them? I, I don't know. That, that, that seems like a leap too far. Or maybe you're looking at what God's calling you to in your business or in your relationships. You're thinking, man, I don't, I don't know if I can take God's call to rest seriously. Maybe that's a leap too far. And I think actually this is the reality of Ahab. Is that he is looking at his circumstances and he is seeing a leap too far. Right, so now let's turn our attention to this impossible passage and kind of parse it out a little bit. I think we're going to see kind of three things. One is Ahab is a political pragmatist. Two is that because of that, there is a prophetic pronouncement against him. And then three, even amongst that, we see a divine purpose, that God has a a purpose, a plan, a, a, a moving forward. So first, Ahab is a political pragmatist. So what you need to know is is that outside of kind of the battles that are happening here and some of the strange language um, that's going that's going on, I mean, if, if you start to kind of read it, it, it feels awkward and strange. Somebody's asking for their wife and Ahab says, yes, that just seems weird. And then he's, and then, and then he's like, no, 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 I want more and I'm gonna send servants in. This just seems kind of strange. This is, this is near ancient Near Eastern, uh, essentially negotiation tactics. The, the Syrian army has come and surrounded Samaria, the, the capital, and is basically flexing its muscle and saying, look, like, do you wanna go to war here? If not, you're, like, this is what it's gonna cost you. And Ahab at first says, yeah, you know, I, I think I can manage that. And then when the cost goes higher, he says, no, 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 I don't think that I can manage that. And so uh, what we have in verse 7 and 8 is, is the first kind of um, showings of Ahab's true allegiance. Then the king of Israel, after they've had this little back and forth, and the army is outside there, then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, do not listen or consent. Right, so who does he call? God. No. The prophets who speak for God. No. 
He calls together the elders and the governors of the land, and he's like, look, what's our strategy here? I think he's, I think he's asking too much. So instead of turning to the prophets, instead of turning to God, what, what Ahab does is he starts to show his cards. He starts to show that he thinks he's got a bead on what is going to happen next. He's, he knows that the discernment and the wisdom of these people, these generals, these, these people who run his economy, who, 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 who kind of do what he would like them to do, they'll have the answers instead of God himself. And so it's so interesting then that as these battles go on, in both of them, the prophet comes to Ahab. Ahab does not go to the prophet. In verse 13, it says, And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, not the other way around. In 1 Kings 20, verse 28, it said, And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, the king did not go and seek God. The king thought he had it covered. He knew the circumstances. He understood the political realities. He understood the army out there and what he could do here and figured, I've got this covered. And it took God to come and start to talk to him in order to expose his political pragmatism. But it comes ultimately to a head after God has divinely and miraculously saved them two times. The first time, the city is surrounded by the Syrian army and Ben-Hadad is so certain that he will take Samaria that his comment is essentially that the soldiers are left will not be able to each grab a handful of dust and walk home with it. That's how devastating the destruction will be in Samaria. And yet God delivers them. And then the next spring comes and Ben-Hadad comes back. He's amassed now a larger army and he figures, oh no, no, we've got this figured out. The God of Israel is the God of the hills. And so now we're gonna fight him in the valley. And there we certainly will have victory. And there's cues in the text that, that what is happening is Israel looks like they are absolutely outgunned. Talks about them being two little go, uh, herds of goats against hundreds of thousands, that the, that the Syrian army covers the mountains, the, the, the fields around. And here's this two tiny little Israeli armies, and, and yet God delivers them in such a grand fashion. And Ahab's response is, right, God, you were right. Man, my strategies would not have made it. I couldn't possibly have done this without you. Thank you, Lord God. I will now trust what you have to say. And do what you ask me to do. Ah, but instead, his pragmatism, his sticking with what he thinks is practical and realistic comes to a head in verse 32 and 30, uh, through 34. So the servants of Ben-Hadad tied sackcloth around their waist and put ropes on their head and went to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And he said, 
Does he still live? He is my brother. What an insane thing to say. This man tried to wipe you off the face of the planet. He wanted your wives and your children and all of your silver and gold. And when that wasn't enough, he wanted more. And then he came back again to destroy you. And your response is, ah, he's my brother. He's my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign. Oh, this is actually good. Because Ahab seems to think that there's some value in Ben-Hadad. That's what his servants see. Oh, good. And they quickly took it up from him and said, yes, yes, your brother, Ben-Hadad. Then he said, go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him and he caused him to come up into his chariot. Let me treat you like an equal. My enemy wanted to take everything from me. And Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities that my father took from your father, I will restore. Ah, we start to see it. Economic benefit. My kingdom will expand. And you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus. Ah, now I have a hold in Syria. That will do me good later on. As my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. See, we discover later on that what God had called him, called Ahab to do through the prophet was to devote the Syrian army to destruction, to so show the sovereignty and power of God that not one person would live. But instead, Ahab is faced with the reality of, do I kill this man and obey God, or do I let him live and have economic power in Damascus? Because what I know is, is that north of, Samaria, uh, of Syria, Assyria, which is really confusing, Assyria is amassing their army and they're starting to actually take off trade routes from these northern, king, northern kingdoms and they're going to want to push south. And so when that comes, which does happen in three years, I'm going to need an ally. So if I show this man mercy, if I dismiss God's call and I show this man mercy he's going to give me back power he's going to give me influence in his area and so when Assyria does come guess what now I have an ally and I can go with him to battle against Assyria and that will be good for me so why would I listen to God that is a bridge too far I stand on the edge and I think no way can I jump from here because I can see the value of having that man in power over there having total control over him and so because of that decision there is a prophetic pronouncement a prophetic judgment against Ahab Look, there's this strange story where a son of the prophets, which is kind of a group of prophets, goes to one of his brothers and says, uh, hey, I need you to strike me. And, and, and he doesn't. And because he doesn't, he gets eaten by a lion. And, and we might do a double take on that and be like, ah, I'm sorry, 
what just happened there? Like, really? Like, I don't think, if, if I came to you and said, look, like, I really need an illustration. Would you sock me? I need a black eye. You might be like, uh, I mean, maybe you don't like me or whatever. And you're like, yeah, yeah, Ron's got his hand up in the back. <laughs> I know I called you old before. I'd take a swing from you. Let's go. But if I said, hey, look, if you don't do it, you're going to go outside and there's going to be a lion outside and he's going to eat you. What would you think? That feels like an unreasonable consequence, right? Like, come on, man. It's just an illustration. Get over yourself. Right. But listen to Deuteronomy chapter 18. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if that word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. You see, it is so serious that when someone claims to come with a word from the Lord, that if they are doing it falsely, or it doesn't come to fruition, their life is at stake. And therefore, when someone comes with and says, thus saith the Lord, it is important, it is incumbent upon you to listen to it. Because if it doesn't come true, his life will be at stake. But if it does, then yours will. And so here comes this man who is in this group of prophets who, sh- who would know this reality. And he says to him, look, the Lord told me that you need to hit me because I have a message for the king. And he says, no way. And so Deuteronomy 18, okay. Let me show you how serious I am, says God. When my word is spoken, let me show you how serious I am. Even the lions will come and obey me. You corrupt prophet. But it also serves as a confirmation of the prophet who now goes to to Ahab, does it not? And that the word that he said to this brother comes true and confirms that now whatever he has to say to the king of Israel is absolutely the word of God. Yes? Yes? Right, and so he goes to, the, to King Ahab and he says this, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man who I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people shall be for his people. Oh, you see, Ahab, I know that I was calling you to something that you felt was impossible, but you're just like these Syrians who think that I'm a God that you can have in your back pocket. And only when it matters, only only when it is convenient to you, will you haul me out and hope for me. 
and then say, oh God, would you call me in this? But what I've shown you through this whole experience is that I am the God of the mountains, that when Syria came to Samaria and you were on your hill and looked out and thought, I can't possibly do this. And then I delivered you from that. And then you went into the valley and they said, oh, his God is only as, as good as the mountains. And I showed you that, no, 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 you, I am as good as in the valley as I am on the mountaintop. And still you stood on the edge and you said, that's too far. And so now I will require your life because of your disobedience. Ahab. Right. Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or in James chapter 2, verse 26, for, the, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith, so saying, I believe, apart from works, is dead. Here's the thing, I love to think of myself as David as he slings his rock at Goliath. But I really don't like to think of myself as David with Bathsheba. And I dream to be Elijah on the mountain calling fire from heaven. But I don't like to associate with the coward who runs in despair after all that God has done. And if I'm really honest, man, more often than not, I am Ahab. Like more often than not, when God calls me to stand at the edge and say, I know it's a jump. But trust me. My response is, I know the reasonable thing to do. My feet feel so firm right here. you love me, you will keep my commandments. So I wonder what that thing is in your heart. Where you stand on the edge and say, God, I, I don't know that I can trust you with this. I know that you've called me to it. But I don't know if I can trust you in it.
Look, God, God calls us to things like rest, that he's called us to a space in where, in, in where he, he exemplified six days of work and then a day of rest, a cadence in which we, are, we ought to live. And then he enshrined in the Ten Commandments the idea of Sabbath, that we would take a day to rest from the, from the machinations of the world, the, the working constantly to try and get ahead and, and toil in the dirt. And to, be, to image him, to trust him with our well-being, with our economic well-being, with our progress in the economy, with our ability to keep up with everything that the world demands. And it is so hard to stand on that cliff and say, I will rest. Even though my crops need to come in, or my client needs me to get back to them, or my kids need something from me, or my house needs fixing. Or maybe it's a financial reality and saying, I know that God calls me to be generous with those around me who have less than me. And I know that God calls me to to build into his mission in the world through the church. And so I know that I should tithe but I don't know how the ends will meet or I see the missed opportunity cost that comes because of it or the cost to my retirement or my ability to pay for my children's education. What will that mean for them? And I don't know that I can actually take that leap off of this cliff. Or maybe you're sitting in your marriage and you're thinking, I know that God calls me to love my wife as he loved the church and gave himself up for her. But what if all that is is cost? What if all that is is cost? I don't know that I can take that leap. Right. And Jesus says that if you love me, if you understand who I am and what I've accomplished, if you, if you truly in your heart, your eyes have been opened to the beauty of what it is that I've done, then what will come out of that is an overflow of obedience towards doing what I have commanded you. Not because it earns you something, but because you're like, you know what? If you call me to jump, I know that I am sure that I am safe. I know it. But that's what we discover in our chapter in 1 Kings chapter 20 is that there is a divine purpose. Look, God has one goal with Ahab. Verse 13. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, you have, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day. And you, Ahab, shall know that I, 
am the Lord. My goal, you know me. Verse 28, and a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is the God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give this great multitude into your hands. Why? So that the Syrians would know that I'm God? No, 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 no. Ahab, so that you would. And this is not a one-time thing. This has been a three-year endeavor from God. From the beginning, Elijah talks to Ahab and says, look, rain is not going to come on the land for three and a half years. And you're like, wow, that is, that is a significant hardship. And the point is, is that Ahab would recognize that going after other gods and going after his own way and understanding his own wisdom is not the way it ought to be but that God controls, that, that he would open his eyes and see that Yahweh, that the God of Israel is the God who controls all. So for three and a half years, he, he is patient with this man. And then he doesn't stop there. He says, okay, you, you don't get that? Fine, I'll send Elijah back and I'm gonna show you that I am God. And we get that in Elijah's prayers in chapter 18. Elijah, when he came near to the people where Ahab was at, the people gathered, the prophets of Baal gathered, Ahab was there, and Elijah says, look, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Ahab remained silent. And Elijah in his prayer in verse 21, how long will you go, oh no, answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. Ahab, that you would know that I am God and that you have turned their hearts back. God's purpose is that Ahab would know him. I'm doing all of this so that you would know me. But Ahab is not just an average dude. Listen to 1 Kings 16, 30 to 31. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. More than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. Now, if you know Israel's history, you know that Jeroboam is the one that, that breaks Israel into two. And, and because he doesn't want to lose his kingdom, he sets up two calves for Israel to worship. And he sets up a whole other set of worship. And he totally disowns the God of Israel and all of his faithfulness throughout all of history. And he sets up it's, it's all this other worship. And scripture says that Ahab walked in Jeroboam's way as if it was a light thing. He's like, it's no big deal. 
this dude is evil. And yet, God relentlessly pursued him. Ahab, Ahab, listen, turn. I know I'm going to make it hard, but turn. Look, see who I am. Know who I am. Trust me. Okay, fine, fine. Let me show you a sign. I will rain fire from heaven. Trust me. Know who I am. Know that I'm the God of the hills and I'm the God of the valleys. Know that no matter what enemy stands in front of you, that even though it seems impossible and though that cliff looks too hard to jump off of, know who I am. Because the cost is incredible. And Ahab does not get the merciful pursuit of this gracious God. And it costs him his life. The prophet says, now Ben-Hadad's life, the one who I had devoted to destruction, now that will be you, Ahab. See, this is not just a political game. This has real cost. Right. So if I sit here as Ahab, I'm in trouble. And yet, we have a God who did not leave us in that state. We have a God who put aside his glory. And came to be among us. So that we could know him. And he showed us how we ought to live. He provided an example of what it looks like to follow the commands of God, to love God and know God so intimately that even though it cost him his life, he did not question. He followed to the end. And in so doing, he gave us a way to know this God. That while we sat like Ahab, with our hearts twisted on ourselves, so planted to the, the practical realities of our world and thinking about how it will affect me and the, the outcomes for myself. No, no, no. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in his amazing priestly prayer, in John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus' prayer for us. He says this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
look, I, I don't know the, the, the cliff that you're standing on. You're like, man, it's so hard to trust God. But, but can, I, can I be honest with you? that As we focus ourselves onto that reality and just see to what extent that, that God pursues us in our twistedness, as, as we see that and how he pursues such an evil guy in, in Ahab, that can, can we not then say, is, is God not worth trusting and jump? Like, isn't, isn't he worth trusting and just obeying? If he would go to that extent to save you, to be patient with you, why, why can't we trust him with our finances, with our kids, with our marriage, with our time, with our businesses? Right? This is a story of conflicting priorities. My question is, will you jump? I know that God's got you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you give us the courage and the the insight to see your grace and glory in Jesus and to see your relentless pursuit of such evil. And God, would that grant us courage to follow you in obedience in things that are difficult, things that are challenging. God, would your spirit inhabit us and give us the joy and peace and patience that we need to pursue what you've called us to. God, and would it be for your glory and for our good that we would trust you in all circumstances. Oh God, thank you for not not leaving us to our own devices, God, but coming and revealing yourself to us. Father, I pray that we would know you more, that we would trust you more. And that you would be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.